It looks as though America's longest war will be over in hours. The lead starts right now. Rockets fired at the Kabul airport as evacuation flights are coming to a close. So what happens to any Americans left behind? People trapped in attics, buildings ripped apart, boats to the rescue. It is deja vu of the worst kind as Ida slams Louisiana 16 years to the day after Hurricane Katrina. And hospitals across the South are now running out of oxygen as people who still are not vaccinated push ICUs to the limits. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin this hour with breaking news in our world lead hours before the U.S. is due to leave Afghanistan completely. There are still some 250 American citizens in the country who want to leave and have not been able to. That is according to a senior State Department official. The 20-year-long war in Afghanistan, America's longest war, does appear almost over. It is now, August 31st, in Kabul. And the massive evacuation operation is coming to a close. The Pentagon claims that the U.S. has evacuated or aided in the evacuation of more than 116,000 people from Afghanistan since August 14th. A huge number, but the danger there remains very real. The U.S. carried out a drone strike in Kabul to eliminate an imminent threat believed to be a suicide bomber. The strike inadvertently killed as many as 10 Afghan civilians, including six children, according to local journalists. The Pentagon suggested that the civilian casualties are because of secondary blasts, because of explosives in the terrorist's car. CENTCOM says they will investigate the matter. Overnight, five rockets were fired at the airport in Kabul. Only one made it inside the perimeter. It caused no damage, we're told. ISIS-K has claimed responsibility. We're told there have been no casualties there. The Pentagon says the threat stream is still real and still active. They say the State Department is in touch with the Americans who are still trying to get out. CNN's Alex Marquardt joins us now live from the State Department. And Alex, what do we know about the Americans who may not make it out before the deadline? Yeah, that's right, Jake. The State Department is saying that they have been in touch with those Americans, whether it's by email, by phone, by text. Uh, They say that there are fewer than 250 Americans who remain who have expressed some sort of desire to get out. But Jake, that's the same figure that we heard yesterday. So very few have gotten out in the past 24 hours. Uh, now, on top of that, there are, are some 280 Americans believed to still be in the country who have not said that they want to leave. That could be for a number of reasons. They may be dual citizens. Uh, they may have extended families who they want to stay with. But I asked this senior State Department official if this effectively means that there will be Americans left behind after the U.S. military and diplomatic presence is gone. And the response was that the military is doing all it can Uh, while it still has time to get those Americans out. All told, Jake, some 6,000 Americans have made their way out, whether it's on those evacuation flights or otherwise, like land borders into neighboring countries. That is just a small fraction uh, of the around 120,000 people who have been evacuated, the vast majority of whom are Afghans. Uh, Jake, on top of the Americans, of course, we've been talking about those so-called SIVs, the Special Immigrant Visa, either holders or applicants, Uh, There is no specific number, the State Department says, of those people uh, who are left in Afghanistan. And then, of of course, there are many, many more who are trying to apply for some kind of refugee status in the United States who are in danger, who will almost certainly be left behind after the U.S. departs. Now, the State Department and the Biden administration have been clear. They say that these efforts to get these people out will not uh, end with the American presence. And we expect uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken to address that uh, when he speaks uh, at around 5 p.m. Eastern time. But what that mechanism will look like for those consular services, for an embassy that will no longer be in the country, that remains very much to be seen, Jake. All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you so much. The Pentagon warned today that this moment is particularly dangerous in Afghanistan. This, as ISIS-K claims responsibility for an attempted rocket attack, on the airport in Kabul. As CNN Sam Kiley reports for us now, the U.S. is promising to meet those threats with force. The charred remains of a car used as an improvised rocket launcher in an attack on Kabul International Airport, likely by ISIS-K. A U.S. defense system intercepted the rockets before they could make impact, and it's all in the final hours of the mass withdrawal of U.S. troops. But deaths are still mounting up 
as the clock ticks down on America's longest war. Ten members of the same family were killed in an earlier U.S. drone strike against an alleged ISIS-K terror team posing an imminent threat to the airport. Six of them were children. The Pentagon saying that there were significant secondary explosions indicating a substantial amount of explosives in a vehicle hit by the drone. We are aware of reports of civilian casualties and we take these reports very seriously and we are continuing to assess the situation. Just hours left ahead of a deadline to be out by midnight Tuesday. Evacuations totaling over 122,000 are drastically down to 1,200 in the last 24 hours as the US effort focuses on military withdrawal. The Taliban, for 20 years a militant military force, now must figure out how to govern. In central Kabul, the economy has ground to a halt and Afghans are struggling to withdraw money from banks. We call on the Taliban to announce its government as soon as possible. The situation in Afghanistan is very bad. Everyone is confused and goes to the borders to leave the country. Everyone is speechless and I don't know what the future of the country will be. The Taliban pledged this weekend that even after the coalition is gone, anyone with a passport will be able to leave the country. And the UN says more than half a million Afghans have been displaced this year alone and warns of mass movement of refugees out of the country by land. That desire to leave is unlikely to wane, even with the promises of moderation from the Taliban leaders. For now, like the US, the Taliban focus is on airport security and protecting their former enemies from more radical ISIS-K insurgents so that the bloody cycle of war doesn't carry on into the last day of this conflict. Now, Jake, there is also now reports coming in uh, from north of Kabul of the sort of cycle of repression that has so driven so many Afghans to want to leave the country with the reported murder of Fawad Andarabad, who is a famous folk singer. He allegedly was dragged from his home and shot by some Taliban fighters. The Taliban has said that it will investigate and punish uh, those responsible if they find them. Jake? All right, Sam Kiley, thank you so much. Joining us live from the region, CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Clarissa, obviously the Taliban has been a terrorist and military force for 20 years. Now they need to govern. Now they need to protect and provide services for 39 million people. Does the Taliban have the capability to, to do that? Do they have the capability to thwart terrorist groups such as ISIS-K? Well, I think the Taliban, Jake, is really getting a sense now of just what they're up against. Because as you mentioned, it's a completely different thing uh, to be an insurgency than it is to be governing. I'll never forget General David Petraeus saying they just have to be right once. We have to be right all the time. And now it's the Taliban that has to be right all the time. And CNN has actually spoken to a Taliban source who said that their primary concern right now is that ISIS-K militants are basically melting into the Taliban, pretending to be the Taliban. And it's incredibly difficult for the Taliban to know who is indeed part of their own fighting force and who may be militant jihadist elements from ISIS-K. That poses a real threat and a real danger because, uh, you know, as our viewers may not understand, there are so many different Taliban fighters from so many different parts of the country under different command who have all descended on Kabul to try to provide security there. So if ISIS militants can sort of adapt the same dress and the same mannerisms and claim to be from a different part of the country, it's actually very easy for them to go about the city with impunity. So there are real concerns now that the Taliban is going to face an uphill battle in trying to provide sustained security when ISIS-K is able to masquerade as them and is intent on causing them as much embarrassment and pain and punishment as possible, Jake. Is there any chance that the Taliban will ultimately end up giving safe haven to ISIS-K? Could we be facing a situation in which the Taliban partners with both the United States on, on, in one way and ISIS-K in a different way? 
You know, that's a really interesting prospect. And when we interviewed uh, the ISIS-K commander who we spoke to about two weeks before the attack, two days before Kabul fell to the Taliban, he talked to us about the fact that the group had a sort of de facto deal in place with the government at that time, whereby they agreed to lay low and stay below the radar. And in return, the government agreed to ignore them and let them have uh, their various little fiefdoms in Nangahar and Kunar province uh, for the most part. So there's no question that there is precedent uh, for dirty deals to be done in the name of trying to sort of create some sort of, uh, not peace, but at least stability. At this stage, the Taliban is very much intent on saying that, you know, the ISIS-K is an absolute enemy. They understand that the whole premise of the withdrawal was predicated on the idea that Afghanistan could never again become safe haven for terrorists. So they don't want to see that happen again, at least publicly. But if ISIS-K continues to uh, launch these types of attacks and project more strength, then it's certainly not inconceivable that in the future some kind of a deal would have to be made if the Taliban wants to be able to focus on all the other business that it now is in charge of. All right, Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Will we have eyes on potential terror threats after the U.S. leaves Afghanistan? Will the U.S. have eyes? We'll talk about that next. And shocking images showing the power of Hurricane Ida. Search and rescues underway right now as the government warns the death toll could shoot up. Stay with us. In our world lead, uh, we're back with the breaking news. The U.S. has officially hit the August 31st deadline set by the Biden administration for withdrawal from Afghanistan because it is August 31st in Afghanistan right now. So in less than one hour, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will make remarks about the current state of operations. Let's discuss with my panel. Uh, General Mark, let me start with you. What is your take on the U.S. withdrawal, especially this last 24-hour period? Well, you know, Jake, I, I make this analogous to that guy who's going to improve your kitchen floor. You know, he's going to lay down the wood and he's going to stain it, right? And where does he depart? He goes out a single exit point, make sure everything's done. I mean, that's essentially what we have on the airport. However, what's different here is that the United States will leave behind, I would guess, unacknowledged capabilities on the ground, special ops capabilities, to make sure that those very final, la those last departures are done without incident. And then they will exfil themselves or they may stay behind, behind as well. But I wouldn't see any acceleration. I wouldn't see any enhanced risk. Look, this is, they've achieved a, an amazing feat of getting over 116,000 Afghan nationals and approximately 6,000 US citizens out. They'll continue that pace and they'll be out of there by the end of uh, this evening in Afghanistan. Juliet, assuming the war is officially declared over in the next few hours, do you expect any sort of response from the Taliban? Uh, no, I actually think at this stage they're going to want to lay low. They have to assert control over the country, as, as Clarissa and others are noting. It's not even clear that they have control over themselves at this stage. We're, seeing, we're hearing about uh, uh, murders going on in other areas of Afghanistan that the uh, Taliban is condemning. So, uh, so what you're going to see, I think, in the, in the next, like, let's just say about two to four weeks, is uh, assertion of control, lots of uh, counter ISIS operations. We will probably be involved with some of them. Uh, we will increase our covert capabilities or what the administration is calling over the horizon capabilities. They are not as good as having uh, uh, troops on the ground, but they, they really are only option at this stage. And then the question is longer term is, who are we dealing with with the Taliban? There's all, is this a, is this a new, more sophisticated, more um, uh, 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 an organization or a government that actually wants to play with the international community. That will tell us a lot about whether they will try to uh, stop international terrorism from growing uh, in Afghanistan, because that, of course, is our concern, not just what's happening in Afghanistan, but whether uh, there is training and other efforts uh, in Afghanistan that then are, are headed towards Western Europe, or as we saw 20 years ago uh, next week uh, here in the United States. General, what are you hearing from veterans, uh, their families, current service members, Gold Star families uh, about the withdrawal? Well, obviously, there is a tremendous amount of angst, um, a lot of anger as a result of how this thing's taken place. 
I would say at the strategic level, Marx's view of this is that at the strategic level, it's the right decision to retrograde and to leave this this country, this war that we've been a part of for 20 years. At the tactical level, not surprisingly, Jake, you've reported on this, you've written about this. Our American service members make us proud and make incredible magic occur when given very, very tough missions. But at that operational level, at that policy level, I see the Department of State not talking to the Department of Defense, not executing a non-evacuation operation, a NEO, sooner so that we could have begun this retrograde and this exfil. So there's a lot of frustration that's taking place. And then you look at who's responsible for the area of operations. We've got a CENTCOM commander who needs to raise a hand and say, I, I got this. This is a terrible tragedy. And I haven't really heard that level of frustration or anger or a sense of how we're going to accomplish this and acknowledgement that that individual owns this, um, I would say, evacuation that hasn't gone exceptionally well at that operational level. And Not well planned at all. Juliet, we keep hearing about uh, over the horizon uh, intelligence yeah. efforts uh, by the Biden administration, which which means from not within the country itself. Uh, will counterterrorism efforts be harder uh, without a U.S. presence in Afghanistan? Yes. I mean, we, we can't deny that. I mean, over the horizon capabilities are, are good. Uh, they are essentially drone and, and airstrikes uh, or covert operations, uh, but they are different. And so I think the question that remains and I, I you know, people some people are exaggerating the threat. Others are saying that we're going to be able to, to counter terrorists the same way. Neither is true. The question that we uh, are facing is as the risk increases in Afghanistan and our capabilities decrease, can we uh, bridge that gap, right, with these over-the-horizon capabilities. We have a lot of capabilities, and, and part of that is going to be the motivation of the Taliban, the capabilities of al-Qaeda and ISIS, and then, of course, our homeland defenses. Let's not forget that. We are not the same country we were 20 years ago, so we have defensive capabilities that are very, very different than they were the morning of 9-11 when none of us had ever heard about terrorism. All right, Julia Kayan, Major General Spider Marks, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. We're waiting for... An update from the Pentagon on the evacuation and withdrawal of U.S. service members from Afghanistan. Stick around for that. Plus, an entire city without power, entire buildings gone. We're live, live on the scene after Hurricane Ida pulverizes the Gulf Coast. Stay with us. Internationally, new images coming in showing the force of Ida, which is now a tropical storm and still on a deadly and destructive path. One person has been killed when a tree fell on a house near Baton Rouge. The Louisiana governor expects the death toll to go up, quote, considerably as search teams reach other hard-hit areas. The primary energy company in the region says that more than 2,000 miles of transmission lines are down. And Ida knocked out power to more than one million customers. Flooding is, of course, still an issue. More than 24 hours now after landfall, President Biden says he has instructed federal agencies to use drones and satellites to assess the damage. More than 5,300 National Guard members have now been activated in the region. CNN's Brian Todd is in the greater New Orleans area for us. And Brian, leaders there asking people to stay put and let first responders do the work. Are, are most people listening? A lot of people are, Jake, a lot of people staying in their homes, but still some people venturing out, as you see behind me here, and look at some of the, the issues that they have to deal with. This house in St. Bernard Parish flattened in a matter of minutes uh, yesterday. Uh, there are power lines down around the other side of that house, power lines down all, all over the place. This is some of the other uh, danger that these people have to navigate uh, around. These, these trees, look at that, this tree snapped in half. This other tree came down completely. Motorists are trying to navigate around that. And again, I mentioned, uh, Jake, down power lines are a big issue uh, right now. They're all over the place. Officials warning people, don't try to go back into your neighborhoods. Flooding is also an issue. All of those things point to the fact that while the storm has largely passed through this area, the dangers remain. Louisiana reeling tonight from Hurricane Ida's brutal impact. We've just been through a, a horrendous night with, with winds, rain, gusts, water coming up, rivers rising, power outages, and it's, it's incredible. 
The Category 4 storm brought pounding winds and devastating flooding that topped roofs in some places. They say it was 185 mile an hour winds, and I believe it. The storm so powerful, it temporarily reversed the flow of the Mississippi River. Desperate search and rescues underway today. I don't want to mislead anyone. Um, robust search and rescue is happening right now. Uh, and I fully expected that death count will go up considerably uh, throughout the day. Local officials deployed boats throughout the day to conduct water rescues for people caught in the quickly rising water. In about a three-hour period, we had probably five to six foot uh, rise in the bayou, and we'll see another rise in, in water again, we think, this afternoon. Ida's path of destruction widespread. U.S. Coast Guard aerials show the storm's severe impact in southeast Louisiana. This is going to be a very long ordeal in terms of getting everything cleaned up and certainly getting everything repaired. More than one million people across Louisiana are now without power after the storm, including the entire city of New Orleans. We're already seeing the power outages across the area, and the threat isn't over. Overnight, the city experienced an outage in its 911 emergency call system as the storm crossed the state. One major electrical transmission tower in Jefferson Parish that supplies power to New Orleans collapsed into the Mississippi River. Entergy Louisiana reported that all eight major transmission lines providing power to the New Orleans area are down. City officials are bracing themselves for what could be weeks without power. I think we have to be realistic at the same time and prepare people for a worst-case scenario just like Hurricane Laura and Lake Charles where it took weeks. Hospitals already hard hit by COVID-19 in Louisiana, now battered by Ida. One clinic lost part of its roof and generator power in the storm. Another healthcare system had to evacuate 165 patients from facilities damaged in the storm. Hospital officials in New Orleans watching the power situation closely. We have fuel for backup generators uh, for the next few days, and we think we will be able to get more fuel uh, here at the hospital. But, uh, but that, that probably is the number one concern for us at this moment. And another sign of concern about the hours and days ahead, the New Orleans police have said they're about to deploy anti-looting teams inside the city. We're going to be faced with nightfall in just a few hours, Jake, so that's a big concern. All right, Brian Todd, thank you so much. Let's bring in the mayor of New Orleans, Latoya Cantrell. Mayor Cantrell, thank you so much for joining us. So Hurricane Ida made landfall 16 years to the day after Hurricane Katrina. As your team surveyed the damage today, how did New Orleans fare? You know what? Um, we, we held the line. Uh, the city of New Orleans made it through this storm. It was definitely a Category 4 that was over us for 12 hours. The worst case scenario did not happen. We did not have another Katrina. And this is something right now that we are absolutely so grateful for. Uh, although we are, um, you know, definitely dealing with significant uh, impacts due uh, to the hurricane, of course, the issues of, of, of power. Uh, that is a big problem here in the city of New Orleans right now. We're working, trying to work our best way through that. Um, where we do have sources of power, it's gener generators only. And so that does speak to the need for fuel. And again, uh, we're working through that. The president of the United States, President Biden, has been definitely uh, activated immediately on last night, uh, ensuring that um, the federal government is providing the resources necessary. And of course, working with uh, state officials. But you know what? The worst did not happen. And we did not, uh, you know, have to do a major rescue nor uh, a post-storm evacuation at this time. I just want to say uh, the, the Pentagon's going to have a briefing at any moment. And I have, if I have to interrupt you, I'm apologizing ahead of time for that happening. But that hasn't happened yet. Um, just next door to New Orleans in Jefferson Parish, we've seen growing lines outside stores and gas stations. Is that also the case in New Orleans? No, uh, the city of New Orleans isn't really seeing that much um, at all. What we are seeing is that residents are adhering. All right, Madam you know, Mayor, I am sorry. I have to interrupt. Uh, thank you so much. That's and, okay. And, uh, our prayers uh, are, are with the people of the region. Let's listen to the Pentagon uh, press the briefing. Uh, there's Vice Admiral uh, John Kirby. Commander of U.S. Central Command. He'll have some opening comments, and then he'll take some questions. Uh, we do have a hard stop at uh, 5 o'clock, um, so I will not waste up any more time. Uh, General, can you hear and see me okay? Hey, John, I can hear and see you just fine. How many? Uh, over. Thank you, sir. Thanks for being here today, and I turn it over to you, sir. Thanks, John. Good afternoon, everyone. 
I'm here to announce the completion of our withdrawal from Afghanistan and the end of the military mission to evacuate American citizens, third country nationals, and vulnerable Afghans. The last C-17 lifted off from Hamad Karzai International Airport on August 30th this afternoon at 3.29 p.m. East Coast time. And the last manned aircraft is now clearing the airspace above Afghanistan. We will soon release a photo of the last C-17 departing Afghanistan with Major General Chris Donahue and the U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, Ross Wilson, aboard. While the military evacuation is complete, the diplomatic mission to ensure additional U.S. citizens and eligible Afghans who want to leave continues. And I know that you have heard, and I know that you're going to hear more about that from the State Department shortly. Tonight's withdrawal signifies both the end of the military component of the evacuation but also the end of the nearly 20 year mission that began in Afghanistan shortly after September 11th, 2001. It's a mission that brought Osama bin Laden to a just end along with many of his Al Qaeda co-conspirators. And it was, not, it was not a cheap mission. The cost was 2,461 US service members and civilians killed and more than 20,000 who were injured. Sadly, that includes 13 US service members who were killed last week by an ISIS-K suicide bomber. We honor their sacrifice today as we remember their heroic accomplishments. No words from me could possibly capture the full measure of sacrifices uh, and accomplishments of those who served, nor the emotions they're feeling at this moment. But I will say that I'm proud that both my son and I have been a part of it. Before I open it up for questions, I do want to provide some important context to the evacuation mission that we just completed in what was the largest non-combatant evacuation in the U.S. military's history. Since August the 14th, over an 18-day period, U.S. military aircraft have evacuated more than 79,000 civilians from Hamid Karzai International Airport. That includes 6,000 Americans and more than 73,500 third country nationals and Afghan civilians. This last category includes special immigrant visas, consular staff, at-risk Afghans and their families. In total, U.S. and coalition aircraft combined to evacuate more than 123,000 civilians, which were all enabled by U.S. military service members who were securing and operating the airfield. On average, we have evacuated more than 7,500 civilians per day over the 18 days of the mission, which includes 16 full days of evacuations and more than 19,000 on a single day. These numbers do not include the roughly 5,000 service members and their equipment that were sent to Afghanistan to secure the airfield and who were withdrawn at the conclusion of our mission. The numbers I provided represent a monumental accomplishment, but they do not do justice to the determination, the grit, the flexibility, and the professionalism of the men and women of the U.S. military and our coalition partners who were able to rapidly combine efforts and evacuate so many under such difficult conditions. As such, I think it's important that I provide you with what I hope will be some valuable context. When the president directed the complete withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan in April, the team at U.S. Central Command began to update and refine our existing plan for a potential non-combatant evacuation operation, or NEO, in Afghanistan. We have a framework of plans that included numerous branches and sequels, depending on the nature of the security environment. Over time, we continued to refine our plans, which included the interagency, the international community, and other combatant commands. Plans such as this are built upon a number of facts and assumptions, and facts and assumptions change over time. While observing the security environment deteriorate, we continued to update our facts and assumptions. As the security situation rapidly devolved in Afghanistan, we took a number of actions to position ourselves for a potential NEO based upon direction from the Secretary of Defense. We positioned forces in the region and put them on increased alert. We began to pre-position supplies, and we began some preparatory work on intermediate facilities in Qatar with the support of our gracious host nation. When the evacuation was formally directed on August the 14th, we began to carry out our plan based upon the initial assumption that the Afghan security forces would be a willing and able security partner in Kabul defending the capital for a matter of weeks, or at least for a few days. Within 24 hours, of course, the Afghan military collapsed completely, opening Kabul up to the Taliban's advance. 
On August the 15th, in a meeting with Taliban senior leadership in Doha, I delivered a message on behalf of the president that our mission in Kabul was now the evacuation of Americans and our partners, that we would not tolerate interference, and that we would forcefully defend our forces and the evacuees if necessary. The Taliban's response in that meeting was in line with what they've said publicly. While they stated their intent to enter and occupy Kabul, they also offered to work with us on a deconfliction mechanism to prevent miscalculation while our forces operated in close quarters. Finally, they promised not to interfere with our withdrawal. It's important to understand that within 48 hours of the NEO execution order, the facts on the ground had changed significantly. We had gone from cooperating on security with a longtime partner and ally to initiating a pragmatic relationship of necessity with a longtime enemy. Into that environment, Rear Admiral Pete Vaisley and Brigadier General Farrell Sullivan of the Marines, and subsequently Major General Chris Donahue of the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, deployed and employed their forces and did extraordinary work with the leading elements of our reinforcement package to safely close the embassy in one period of darkness or one, one evening, to establish a deconfliction mechanism with the Taliban, to establish security at the airport, and to bring in the rest of our reinforcements into the airport. They accomplished this difficult list of tasks within 48 hours of supporting the transfer of the embassy to the airport. I visited Kabul on Tuesday, August the 17th, to see the work being done to establish security firsthand and to observe the transition to the evacuation. I left on a C-17 that brought more than 130 Afghans and American citizens out from uh, Karzai International Airport to Al-Yadid Air Base in Qatar. Our men and women on the ground at the airport quickly embraced the dangerous and methodical work of defending the airport while conducting the hand-to-hand screening of more than 120,000 evacuees from six different entry points under the airfield. We also conducted three separate helicopter extractions of three distinct groups of civilians, including at least 185 American citizens, and with our German partners, 21 German citizens. Additionally, U.S. Special Operations Forces reached out to help bring in more than 1,064 American citizens and 2017 SIVs for Afghans at risk and 127 third country nationals, all via phone calls, vectors, and escorting. We have evacuated more than 6,000 U.S. civilians, which we believe represents the vast majority of those who wanted to leave at this time. It would be difficult to overestimate the number of unusual challenges and competing demands that our forces on the ground have successfully overcome. The threat to our forces, particularly from ISIS-K, was very real and tragically resulted in the loss of 13 service members and dozens of Afghan civilians. I've said this before, but I'd like to say it again. We greatly appreciate the contributions of the many coalition partners that stood with us on the ground at, Harma, uh, at Karzai International Airport. I'm just gonna single out one nation as an example of the many, the Norwegians who maintained their hospital at the, at the airport and who were absolutely critical for the immediate care of our wounded after the Abbey Gate attack. Even after the attack, they agreed to extend the presence of their hospital to provide more coverage for us. Our diplomats have also been with us in Kabul from the beginning, and their work in processing over 120,000 people stands right beside that of their military partners. We were a team on the ground. As I close my remarks, I would like to offer my personal appreciation to the more than 800,000 service members and 25,000 civilians who have served in Afghanistan, and particularly to the families of those whose loved ones have been lost or wounded. Your service, as well as that of your comrades and family members, will never be forgotten. My heart is broken over the losses we sustained three days ago. As the poem by Lawrence Binion goes, we will remember them. The last 18 days have been challenging. Americans can be proud of the men and women of the armed forces who met these challenges head on. I'm now ready to take your questions. Thank you, General. We'll start uh, with the lead at AP. I would ask you to, because we're limited on time, to please limit your follow-up so that uh, more people can get questions asked. Go ahead, Lita. General, thanks for doing this. It's Lita with AP. Um, can you give us a sense of whether or not there were any American citizens or other civilians who were taken out on any of those last couple of C-17s that flew out this, after, uh, this afternoon? And can you give us a picture of what you saw 
uh, with equipment and other things getting either destroyed or removed at the airport before they left. So we no no American citizens came out on the last what we call the joint tactical exfiltration, the last uh, five jets to leave. Uh, we we maintained the ability to bring them in up until immediately before departure, but we were not able to bring any Americans out. That activity ended probably about 12 hours before our exit, although we continued the outreach and would have been prepared to to bring them on until the very last minute, but none of them made it to the airport and were able to be and were able to be accommodated. We brought some of it out and we demilitarized some of it. Let me give an example of something that we demilitarized. You're uh, very much aware, of course, of the rocket attack that occurred yesterday where five rockets were fired at, uh, at the airfield. Our CRAMs were very effective in, uh, in engaging the two rockets that did fall on the airfield, and we believe they probably kept them from doing more significant damage. We elected to keep those systems in operation up until the very last minute. It's a complex uh, procedure, complex and time-intensive procedure to break down those systems. So we demilitarized those systems so that they'll never be used again. And it was just a, a, we felt it was more important to protect our forces than to bring those systems back. We have also demilitarized uh, equipment that we did not bring out at, uh, uh, of the airport that included a number of MRAPs, uh, up to uh, 70 MRAPs that we demilitarized and will never be used again by anyone. 27 uh, Humvees, the little tactical vehicle that will never be driven again. And additionally, uh, on the ramp at, uh, at, at HKIA, are a total of 73 aircraft. Uh, those aircraft will never fly again uh, when we left. They'll never be, uh, be able to be operated by anyone. Most of them are non-mission capable to begin with, but certainly they'll never be able to be flown again. Thank you. David. Uh, General David Martin with CBS. Was there any attempt uh, to interfere with the final flights out, either by the Taliban or by ISIS or any other group, and did, at the end, did Americans just vacate the premises or did they turn it over to the Taliban? Oh, we know that ISIS-K has worked very, very hard to strike us and to continue to strike us. We feel that the strike we took yesterday in Kabul actually was very disruptive to their attack plans and threw them off stride. And I think that was one of the significant reasons why they were not able to organize themselves and get after us as we conducted the final withdrawal. I will tell you the Taliban have been very, pragma very pragmatic and very businesslike as we have approached this uh, withdrawal. We did not turn it over to the Taliban. Uh, General Donahue, one of the last things he did before leaving was talk to the Taliban commander that he had been coordinating with as soon as we, at about the time we were gonna leave just to let them know that we were leaving. But there was no discussion of turning anything over uh, of that at all. Jen. General McKinsey, Jennifer Griffin from Fox News. If I could just have you reflect personally, after 20 years of war, you've served there, you've now watched the last troops leave, you've lost troops in recent days. How did it feel leaving Afghanistan to the very group that you overthrew 20 years ago, the Taliban? Well, as I sort of said in my remarks, I, as you know, I've been there a couple of times. Uh, my son's been there a couple of times. Um, so, and it, it was very, uh, I was very conflicted actually, but I would tell you, I was pretty much focused on the task at hand. I'll have days ahead to actually think about that, but there was just so much going on in this headquarters and we were so completely focused on getting our troops out and in uh, the, the days before getting, uh, you know, getting, getting our citizens out and vulnerable Afghans to the best of our ability. That I did not have a lot of time for reflection. I'm sure I will do that in the future, but right now I'm pretty much consumed with the with the operational task at hand. That's a question, and I and I am going to be thinking about that in the days ahead. Your message to Americans and Afghan allies who were left behind. So the military phase of this operation has ended. The diplomatic sequel to that will now begin, and I believe our Department of State is going to work very hard to allow any American citizens that are left, and we think the citizens that were not brought out number in the low, very low hundreds. Uh, I believe that we're gonna work, we're gonna be able to get those people out. I think we're also gonna negotiate very hard and very aggressively to get our other Afghan partners out. The military phase is over, but our desire to bring these people out remains as intense as it was before. The weapons have just shifted, if you will, from the military realm 
to the diplomatic realm, and the Department of State will now take the lead on that. Nancy. Can you tell us how many people are on that final C-17 flight? Can you tell us where that flight is headed? And you mentioned that General Donahue talked to his Taliban, essentially his counterpart. Can you give us any sense of what role the Taliban played from a security perspective to allow the U.S. to safely depart Kabul? Yes, I'm not going to be able to answer the first two questions because those operations are still concluding as to where those aircraft are going and and the exact disposition of our forces on the aircraft. I can tell you this, though, about what the Taliban has done. They established a firm perimeter outside of the airfield to prevent people from coming on the airfield during our departure. And we've, we've worked that with them for a number of days. They did not have direct knowledge of our time of departure. We choose to keep that. We chose to keep that uh, very information very restricted, but they were uh, actually very helpful and useful to us as we closed down operations. I want to go to the phones. I haven't done that yet. Dan Lamoth. Hey, thanks for, thanks for calling on me. Uh, General, can you, can you give us a, I guess a deeper level of detail on what this last day looked like in terms of number of flights, number of people you had on the ground to start with, um, who might have been on that last plane, particularly senior leaders, and uh, kind of just how it's all played out. Thanks. Sure. So let me actually begin with the back end of your question. On the last airplane out was uh, General Chris Donahue, the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, and my ground force commander there. And he was accompanied by our, our Charge A, Ambassador Ross Wilson. So they came out together. So the state uh, defense team came out on the last aircraft and were, in fact, the last people to stand on the ground, step on the airplane. So what has happened over the last 12 or 18 hours is, we, we first of all, we were intent on maintaining the ability to bring out uh, Americans and other, uh, and other Afghans as long as we could. So we kept that capability until just a few hours ago. And we were able to bring out some people earlier in the day, although, as I've noted earlier, we had to cut it off um, sometime before this operation began. But we were intent on maintaining that capability. We were also intent on maintaining our force protection because of the, the threats from ISIS were very real, uh, very, uh, very concerning. And so we did a number of things. We had overwhelming U.S. air power overhead should there have been any uh, challenge to our departure. And again, th- there was absolutely no question we were not going to be challenged by the Taliban. We were, if we we're going to be challenged, it was going to be by ISIS. And I think some of the things we've done uh, yesterday, particularly the strike, and other things we've done have disrupted their ability to conduct that uh, to conduct that attack planning. But they may they remain a very lethal force. And I think we would assess that probably there are at least two thousand hardcore ISIS fighters in Afghanistan now. And of course, many of those come from the prisons that were that were opened a few a few days ago. So that number is up and is probably as high as it's ever been in quite a while. And that's going to be a challenge for the Taliban, I believe, in the days ahead. Idris. Uh, thank you, General. Uh, two quick questions. There were about 500 Afghan soldiers who were uh, protecting the perimeter. Did you evacuate them and their families? And secondly, um, just on the airport, uh, now that you've departed, do you believe it can uh, take on civilian aircraft pretty soon, or will it require some type of repair or expertise? Sure, so to the best of my knowledge, which is actually pretty good, I believe we brought out all the Afghan uh, military forces who were partnered with us to defend the airfield and their family members. I believe that that, that has been accomplished. Uh, we need the airport to be operational, and we need the airport to be operational quickly for civilian, you know, for civilian traffic. So we're gonna do everything we can to, uh, uh, to help with that. Let me give you an example. One of the things we did not demilitarize as we left were those pieces of equipment that are necessary for airport operations, such as a fire truck, some of the front end loaders, things like that. We left that, we left that equipment. So that is available uh, to allow that airport to get back and get operating as soon as possible. And, and, and it needs to get operating as soon as possible. Louis. Uh, General, today is August 30th. And the deadline had repeatedly been said that it was going to be August 31st. Um, do you think that there may be some people who had some false hope that they had at least one more day before this happened? And can you explain the tactical decision as to why you uh, completed this mission on the 30th as opposed to the 31st? Sure. So it's actually the 31st in Afghanistan. As we take a look what day of the week, what day of the month it is, it's the 30th here, 31st in Afghanistan. So we actually went out on the 31st, not the 30th, if you look at Afghan time. Look, there's a lot of heartbreak associated with this departure. We did not get everybody out that we wanted to get out. But I think if we'd stayed another 10 days, Louis, we wouldn't have gotten everybody out that we wanted to get out. And there still would have been people who would have been disappointed with that. 
it's a it's, it's a tough situation. But I want to emphasize again that simply because we have left, that doesn't mean the opportunities for both Americans that are in Afghanistan that want to leave and uh, and Afghans who want to leave, they will not be denied that opportunity. I think our Department of State is going to work that very hard in the days and weeks ahead. Courtney, uh, just one clarification, General McKenzie. It's Courtney QB from NBC News. Are, are, so, were there any evacuees left at the airport when the last U.S. military flight left? There were no evacuees left at the airport when the U.S. last flight left, Courtney. Thank you. And then just on the Taliban, you know, you've, you've talked about their pragmatic ways of operating with the U.S. military here. Do you see a role for the U.S. military to have open conversations with the Taliban, even potential coordination going forward, in particular um, with this growing and now accentuated um, threat from ISIS? Well, I'll tell you, my, my dealing with the Taliban and uh, my, the dealings of my commanders on the ground with the Taliban revolved around our determination to execute this operation and the very flat statement we made to them that if we, you know, if you challenge us, we're going to hurt you. And I think they recognize that. And for their own purposes, this is something they wanted to have happen too. I would, I, I can't foresee the way future coordination be, between us would go. Uh, I, I would leave that for, for some future date. I will simply say that they wanted us out. We wanted to get out with our people and with our, and with our friends and partners. And so for that short period of time, our issues, our, our, our view of the world was congruent. It was the same. Finally, I do believe the Taliban is going to have their hands full with ISIS-K. And they let a lot of those people out of prisons, and now they're going to be able to reap what they sowed. Tara. Thank you. General McKenzie, Tara Kopp with Defense One. Um, can you assure the American public that every single U.S. service member is now out of Afghanistan? Every single U.S. service member is now out of Afghanistan. I can say that with 100% certainty. Carla. Um, sir, really quickly, just to clarify, um, you mentioned 123,000 out of Afghanistan. Earlier this morning, we heard 122. So can we assume that that was 1,000 Afghans that came out in these some of these final flights? And then I have a quick follow-up. We brought about 1,000 Afghans, I think over 1,500 out in the last 24 hours or so. The exact number, I'm sure, is probably that that computation is probably going to change a little bit in the days ahead. I don't think it's going to change much. But yes, we brought a number of Afghans out here at the very end. And then, sir, how would you characterize this evacuation mission? Because on the one hand, 123,000 people got out. On the other hand, of course, you have you lost 13 Marines. Uh, more than 100 Afghans died, and there are still potentially tens of thousands. SIVs, P1s, P2s, and others that wanted to get out that did not get out, as you said. So how would you characterize this mission? Well, first of all, the, the 11 Marines, the soldier and the sailor that we lost, I will never forget that. That, that, will, that will be with me and I know every other commander involved uh, for the rest of our lives. We've all, lost, we've all lost people before and it's never an easy thing. Um, you, you would like to bring out everybody that wanted to come out. We're not able to do that. Situation wouldn't allow it. I think we did a very good job of getting everybody that we could get uh, that we could get out, given the unique cha the challenges of the tactical situation on the ground. The fact that really not it, not all Americans wanted to leave. There are Americans that, for a variety of reasons, want to stay for a while. I think we'll go back and they'll have the opportunity to uh, they'll have the opportunity to revisit that and come out if they want. I think it's just important to, to note that we shouldn't look on this as the end of that engagement about people in Afghanistan. I am confident that that engagement is going to continue through a variety of venues, and it won't just be the United States that's going to be engaged on this. I think our international partners are also going to be very engaged on this as well going forward. Yeah, we had two more, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, we'll go to the phones again. Jack Dutch. Um, thanks. Thanks, General McKenzie. I'm, I'm kind of curious just how American citizens are going to be expected to get to the airport and what the continuing terror threat uh, will be just in the coming days and, and what the evacuation picture is going to look like for them? So I think that the, the terror threat is going to be very high, and uh, I, I don't want to minimize that. But I think what we'll do is we will work with the Taliban and work with the next government of Afghanistan, Afghanistan, whatever its characterization is going to be, in order to ensure that our citizens are protected and that they have an opportunity to, uh, to leave. As you know, we still hold a variety of significant leverage over whatever future government exists in Kabul. And I, and I have no doubt that the Department of State will fully exercise that leverage. Okay. Do you have any confidence in their ability to secure the city right now, the Taliban? I think they're going to be challenged to secure the city. 
I do know this, just speaking purely practically as a professional, they helped us secure the airfield, not perfectly, but they they gave it a very good effort. And it was actually significantly uh, significantly helpful to us, particularly here at the end. Last question for today, Megan. U.S. Sorry, this is Megan Myers at Military Times. Are there any U.S. aircraft still doing um, overflights of Afghanistan, uh, either Kabul or otherwise, looking out for potential threats? So, as we have said uh, for quite a while, we always reserve the opportunity to uh, go after in the CT realm, the counterterrorism realm, Al Qaeda and ISIS when those targets prevent, uh, present themselves. So, we will always retain the ability to do that. Okay, that's about all the time we have, General. Uh, any concluding thoughts you might want to add? John, it's been a uh, it's been a long day and uh, much longer actually for our forces that are coming out. Uh, the operation has gone smoothly so far, and I uh, just look forward to look forward to re- recovering the force completely, getting everybody home. Thank you, General. Thanks for your time. Thank you all. Have a nice afternoon. So that is some breaking news for you. The war in Afghanistan is over, according to the chairman of the Central Command General, uh, Kenneth McKenzie. The last American military planes have left Afghanistan after 20 years of war. This marks the first time in 20 years that the U.S. and its allies have not had any troops on the ground, any service members in Afghanistan. But... Hundreds of Americans who wanted to leave and thousands of lawful permanent residents of the United States and countless Afghan allies have been left behind. We are waiting to hear from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken shortly to talk about that and more. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins uh, joins me live. And and Caitlin, four presidents, 20 years, uh, both Obama and Trump uh, promised to end this war. Uh, And now President Biden has done it. Uh, It may not have been a pretty exit, um, but it is a very significant moment for the United States. It is, Jake. And I do think it's significant that, of course, this is driven by a decision that President Biden made, but he did not announce this. It was Central Command, of course, that made this announcement that one minute before the deadline, before the clock in Kabul struck midnight for August 31st, was the last time that C-17, a military plane, took off from Kabul and headed back home. And he is confirming there that not a single U.S. service member is left in Afghanistan. However, he did note the heartbreak of this evacuation, saying they did not get everyone out of, out of Afghanistan, out of Kabul, that they wanted to evacuate. But General McKenzie saying there he did not think if they had 10 more days to continue evacuations that they still would have been able to get everyone they wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Still, he did note the big numbers, the thousands of people that they were able to get out. He said about 6,000 Americans were part of this evacuation that, of course, involved tens of thousands of third country nationals and Afghan allies, of course, other endangered Afghans as part of this massive evacuation effort. And, Jake, one notable thing that he did say there is there are still Americans left in Afghanistan who wanted to get out. He said he believes it's in the very low hundreds, but he said on those last five military flights that happened before that midnight deadline that they did not have any Americans on those flights. He said they were not able to get to the airport. They were not able to accommodate them on those flights. So, of course, that's another notable moment as well, as he is saying this is shifting from a Pentagon mission to a State Department effort. And the State Department is still going to work with those people who are still in Afghanistan and want to leave. I imagine those are the next steps that we are going to hear from Secretary Blinken in just a few a few moments from now. One other thing I want to note, Jake, before we do go to Secretary Blinken, though, is talking about this equipment on the ground. And he said the efforts that they had to demilitarize it and essentially make it useless. A lot of those Humvees, a lot of aircraft, things that were left on the ground that he said they left because they figured it was more important to ensure the safety of the troops than to make sure that equipment was either destroyed or got out of there. But he said, did say a lot of that is going to be inoperable. And like those Humvees won't drive again, those planes won't fly again. So notable moments of what's left behind, of course, in the bigger picture of this moment that the U.S. presence from Afghanistan is gone. You know, the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said on State of the Union yesterday that that August 31st, which it is now, that's now the date in Afghanistan, that's not a cliff. There still will be efforts to get people, especially American citizens, out of Afghanistan. And in fact, uh, General McKenzie just said that one of the biggest tasks for the Taliban right now is to 
gain control of the airport so that commercial flights uh, in and out of that country can resume. Uh, Caitlin, it is fascinating to me that this momentous decision was given to General McKenzie to make and not President Biden, because ultimately this was a decision made by President Biden. Tell us about that decision. Well, it's not clear why it wasn't President Biden who announced that the last flight had left, the last service member was gone out of Afghanistan, because remember, it was the president who back in April, after he had made his decision, after what he got was what aides later described was not a sugar-coated review of what the options were when it came to the U.S. presence in Afghanistan. It was President Biden who announced it here from the White House, that that was the method they were going to be pursuing, and that was the decision he had made. But he left it up to one of his top military commanders to announce this, who, of course, has been overseeing this entire evacuation mission over the last several days, some of which have been incredibly chaotic and deadly. And it was General General McKenzie who talked the day that those 13 U.S. service members were killed and took questions from reporters. And he noted that there. He said that is something that he is going to carry with him for the rest of his life. And other military commanders will carry that with them as well. And Jake, I just also think some of the reporters in the room were getting at this, but just to look at what the last few moments looked like and how he was saying they did not hand things over to the Taliban, but they did inform the Taliban when they were leaving and that they were leaving, which is notable given now it is up to them to deal with that airspace, to deal with that airport, to deal with securing Kabul, of course, the city that they took over in surprising fashion that stunned so many of the officials in this administration with how quickly it happened. And so that's a big question, too, as this is now a State Department effort. And we'll hear from Secretary Blinken what their plan is going forward for those Americans that are still there, those Afghan allies allies that are still there. But also, what does Afghanistan look like going forward? And who does control the airport ultimately? And how does this work with the Taliban? Are they ever internationally recognized as a legitimate form of government? Those are big questions that still remain going forward from the U.S. presence there. Caitlin, stick around. I want to bring in CNN's Barbara Starr live at the Pentagon. Alex Marquardt also with us from the State Department. Uh, And Barbara, it was very interesting when General McKenzie uh, said that they did not get every American out, but he also thought even if they had 10 extra days, he didn't think they would be able to get out everyone they wanted to get out. It has been an incredibly complicated, uh, logistically, and also very dangerous process. We've, we've all been hearing behind the scenes about buses full of people trying to flee Afghanistan, not able to get through the gate um, because of the terrorist threat. Well, Jake, I, I, I think that's right. And I think going back to your previous point, some of this may be the reason you saw General McKenzie be the one to make the announcement. Make no mistake, President Biden now has a four-star general in the Marine Corps, senior commander, putting his stamp on this withdrawal today, the completion of the U.S. effort, military effort in Afghanistan. The terror threat from ISIS-K has certainly complicated it in recent days. Mackenzie took, I thought it was interesting, he took pains to say that they had come to a pragmatic relationship with the Taliban, and he pointed out that the Taliban had been helpful But lots of reports that people could not get through those initial Taliban checkpoints surrounding the airport or were too terrified to even make their way there. So that is a big part of the problem. And that now is going to be something that I think the U.S. is going to press the Taliban to uh, rectify their own position. Because McKenzie went on to say one of the big problems for the Taliban right now, they're going to have to deal with ISIS-K. It's going to be their problem. They have to secure Kabul, secure the airport, and they're now estimated, according to the general, about 2,000 ISIS-K operatives out there, many of them released uh, during the prison releases by the Taliban in the, er- in the early days of this takeover. So McKenzie is very much making the public point. This is now in the Taliban's lap. They are going to have to maintain security. They're going to have to deal with ISIS and that the U.S. shifting to the diplomatic front with the State Department is going to press the Taliban to live up to that promise that Americans, anybody who wants to leave, Afghans at risk, will be able to travel out of the country. If you're just joining us, uh, we are in a moment of history 
Uh, it is August 30th here in the United States of America, but it is August 31st in Kabul, Afghanistan, and General uh, Ken McKenzie, uh, the commander of Central Command, has announced the end of U.S. operations, the end of any U.S. service member presence in Afghanistan. In effect, the war in Afghanistan is over. It is a historic moment. It has been an ugly exit. Uh, the argument from President Biden has been that it was going to be exit, an ugly exit no matter what. Uh, be that as it may, it has not been uh, an exit that every American has in Afghanistan has been able to leave. Uh, Alex Marquardt at the State Department, um, we've heard from the administration that they think there are a little bit more than 200 American citizens who want to leave who have not been able to get out. There are some Americans who have family there and who have chosen to stay. Of those 200, 250 American citizens who want to leave, what can you tell us about them? Yeah, the, the way they're describing it, Jake, is fewer than 250. And it was, it was so remarkable to hear General McKenzie there saying that we didn't get everybody out uh, who we wanted to get out. Um, they said that He said that they maintained the capability of getting Americans out up until the very last moment, uh, but that there were no Americans on those last five planes that flew out um, at 3.29 Eastern time, so just before midnight uh, on August 30th uh, in Afghanistan. Now, I think one point that is important to make, Jake, is that you may have American citizens, you may have green card holders, you may have SIV visa holders uh, who technically can get out of the country, but so many of those people don't want to leave loved ones behind or don't want to leave people that they have worked with behind. I spoke with someone earlier who said that they were an American citizen who did not want to leave by herself. She had a group of people who, she said, worked with Americans who also wanted to get out. And it's remarkable that McKenzie there said that these Americans, fewer than 250, as the Biden administration has said now repeatedly, were not able to get to the airport. So that begs the question, how are they going to be able to get out now? Uh, we with no American presence on the ground. Um, McKenzie making clear in his comments um, that the next step is what he called the diplomatic sequel, that this is moving from the military to the diplomatic realm, uh, landing, if you will, to borrow Barbara's wording, in, in the State Department's lap. So we are hoping to get some kind of explanation um, from Secretary of State uh, Blinken in, in the coming moments as to how he expects Americans... Uh, Afghans who have supported Americans and other Afghans at risk to get out of the country now. We don't even know who controls the airport. Is it going to be the Taliban by itself? Is it going to be the Taliban in conjunction with other countries like Qatar and Turkey? Could it be a private company? Are they going to be expecting people to, to cross at land borders into other, into other countries? We simply do not know. Uh, we do expect Secretary Blinken to lay out um, his vision for how uh, the American diplomatic effort is going to continue, not a presence, because there won't be any American diplomats there. The last American diplomat, the most senior, chargé d'affaires, uh, was on that last plane out. Um, so they, the a senior State Department official told us earlier um, that they have come up with an option um, for how they intend to uh, maintain that diplomatic effort. But there are so many questions that remain um, so many answers that we hope to get from the secretary uh, when he speaks uh, in, in what should be just a few minutes time, Jake. Alex, Barbara, Caitlin, stay with me. I want to uh, bring back Juliet Kayyem and retired Major General uh, Spider Marks. Uh, uh, General Marks, first, uh, this moment in history, the war in Afghanistan is over. Uh, 2,461 U.S. service members, thousands more American contractors, more than 20,000 American service members injured, uh, including, of course, the, in the casualty toll, uh, the 13 U.S. service members killed last week and, and the 20 wounded. Um, what's going through your mind right now, General? Jake, thanks for the question. Um, this is, as General McKinsey indicated, um, the time to begin the reflection and to begin the real tough work of doing that after-action review to determine what did we not see? What, where did we fail in our efforts? What did we miss in terms of our assessment of this Afghan military with whom we had been embedded and had equipped and trained for the past two decades? Did we not see that there was incredible fractures throughout 
um, the entire organization of the Afghan military and law enforcement and all their security forces? Um, was it really a misreading of the culture? Did we not have the right filter on in terms of understanding this? We certainly had history in front of us. The the Brits couldn't do it in the 19th century. The Soviets couldn't do it in the 20th century. And with a little bit of hubris, we thought we'd get it done in the 21st century. And we found out we could not. So we need to be able to come back and get back to the notion of how can we, as an American military, along with incredible diplomatic efforts, be able to reach across the horizon and better figure out who our friends and partners are and to convince folks that they can move to our side of the national security perspective so that we can get a better understanding. We can't go it alone. We certainly cannot go it alone. Julia Kayyem, you used to work for the, uh, be a high-ranking official at the Department of Homeland Security. Let me ask you a a broad question. 20 years later, thousands of lives, $2 trillion. Is the United States, are the American people safer now than we were on September 10th, 2001? I, th- I can say affirmatively yes. I mean, I think there's just no question about that. It's, we're not safe. We've never been safe. I think some of the mythology about 9-11 is the belief that, you know, it was unicorns and roses before that. But 9-11 showed a vulnerability. It's not just simply our homeland security defenses and that we're better at that. And of course, it is just as, as General Marks was saying, just our capabilities uh, to stop uh, counterterrorism, but it's not risk-free. We have not eliminated the risk. We delude ourselves if reporters and analysts talk about it that way. There's no risk elimination in, in a world like ours, but we can continue to uh, to reduce the risk. And I think um, I think there's a lot of emotion for a lot of us right now because when you think about when the Afghanistan war started. Um, and, and righteous may not be the right word, but I think that there was sort of a singular focus about what our mission was in terms of counterterrorism, the world I came from, uh, and, and what had happened on 9-11. That mission changed, uh, and we also started another war. And you, uh, we're going back to that mission, as General McKenzie made clear uh, at the end of his uh, uh Press, uh, presser, uh, we will continue that mission. We must. That is a, a good mission for the United States. Uh, but a lot was lost in 20 years. Uh, and and But we're a stronger nation in terms of our defenses. Our capabilities are different. Uh, and the Taliban is different. I mean, we don't know what they're like, uh, but it is, it's a different world. But uh, I'm going to quote McKinsey, uh, who said he was conflicted uh, about leaving uh, Afghanistan. I think he was speaking on behalf of, of, mu- of much of this nation. Yeah, the Taliban is different, we hope. We hope the Taliban yeah. is different. I'm not so certain. Yeah. Everyone stick around. Uh, we are waiting to hear from the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, after this historic moment, this historic withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan. Stay with CNN. Plus, of course, some other crises still going on in this country. Families are trapped in attics in scenes reminiscent of Hurricane Katrina after the levees fell. CNN is live on the scene on the Louisiana coast as volunteers look for survivors after Hurricane Ida. Stay with us. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.